Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Jennifer Cobb, who is leading a big research project in Cambridge on trustworthy technology, and she is going to be talking to us about machine learning. These Talking Politics guides are brought to you, as ever, in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. Let's start with just some basic definitions so we know what we're talking about. Can you tell us what we should understand by artificial intelligence? Okay, so artificial intelligence, what people mean when they talk about that is using machine learning. It's not, you know, robots that are coming to kill everybody and wipe out humanity. It's just machine learning, which is basically a process of getting a, a machine, a computer, to train itself to spot patterns and correlations in big data sets, really, really big data sets of millions and millions of records, without having to actually specifically program it to do it itself. It can it can adjust itself and change its its processes and its algorithms. As a form of intelligence, is it anything like human intelligence yet? Oh, no, no. There's a big difference between um, artificial intelligence, as it's sort of talked about now, and, and artificial general intelligence, which is the kind of the sort of more like, more human-like intelligence. But there's also no reason why, even if we got to artificial general intelligence, that it would be human-like. It could be a whole other form of intelligence that we don't currently recognise. You know, not, there are also other forms of intelligence. So the machines we have now that are trawling through these vast troves of data looking for patterns, they're not thinking like we do. What on that model are they capable of? How far could that go before you need a category shift into something more like general intelligence? Um, I, well, at the minute, what they basically are is essentially just a whole lot of equations that are just going through data and, and just working out the numbers on them. So they're quite far removed from sort of what we consider to be sort of human intelligence. And I think there's this thing with AI where there's this whole hope that comes in cycles with this great hope that actually we're going to be on the verge of of human-like intelligence or something approaching human-like intelligence and then the field kind of regresses a bit and it all falls away and it calls an AI winter and there's been through a few sort of cycles like that and we're kind of at the point now where people are beginning to realise that what they thought might be a, a way of perhaps getting to something like artificial general intelligence which was deep learning which was having loads and loads of equations basically stacked up together to, to make it much more complex but things that can recognise much more complex patterns that that's probably not really the way to go towards artificial general intelligence. So where we are at the minute is really still miles away, I think. In that deep learning space, the work's being done by algorithms. So just tell us a bit about how we should think about what is an algorithm? There's always a bit of a confusion between AI, machine learning, and, and algorithms. Algorithms is kind of the social science kind of word for machine learning. So when you say about algorithms doing things, it's really it's machine learning doing things. It's just the, the shorthand for that. But machine learning is made up of algorithms, and algorithms are really just equations. They're just, you know, it processes inputs and puts outputs. That's essentially what an algorithm is. And they're, they've existed long, long before machine learning. You know, thousands of years algorithms have been around. They're not a new invention. They're just new for this purpose. And they're much more powerful than they've ever been in terms of what they can do. Yeah, because obviously, you know, now we have much greater computational power and much bigger data sets than we've ever had in the past. So for that kind of thing, they're much more powerful in in that way. But the basics of what they actually are is still more or less the same. And when we talk about them for things like politics, 
We worry about what algorithms might do. We worry about questions of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Should we trust a world where algorithms have so much influence? Are we using the right language? Can we talk about algorithms doing things? Can we talk about trusting algorithms? Yeah, we can. I think I think one of the things to, to remember about an algorithm or a machine learning system or AI, however you want to phrase it, is that it has a functional power in that in that it does something, but it also has a real normative power in that it's it's somebody has created this to do a particular thing with a goal in mind and a particular outcome in mind. So when we talk about the impact of algorithms on politics, what we actually mean is the impact of people using algorithms to do certain things. Because the algorithms themselves you know, there is that normative side to them and that's all about human interest and human directed kind of activity. They're not just operating in a neutral kind of way where the algorithms are just doing things. It's it's always humans driving them and, and making them working in a particular way and for a particular reason. And are there certain things that we should be particularly concerned about that humans are now using algorithms to do? There are many, many different issues that come up with this kind of stuff and there's a lot to do with data protection and privacy. So, I mean, in terms of privacy, it's, it, there's a big issue in that if you have a big data set about millions of people and you want to find out things about those people that maybe even they don't know about themselves, you can do that, depending on obviously what kind of data you have and, and what kind of analysis you perform on it. But you can find out things about people that you would have otherwise absolutely no way of, of knowing about them. And you see that's been used in politics, the Cambridge Analytica stuff. I mean, whether or not that snake oil is still a matter for debate but what they were trying to do anyway was was figure out things about people to then target them with advertising based on those things that they've found out about them but it's also the basis of the whole targeted advertising industry online is is inferring things about people through this kind of analysis but even beyond that when you're looking at things to do with health records or looking really to do with you can do facial recognition you can do pattern recognition on anything or speech recognition the uses of these are potentially you know, really wide-ranging, so almost any kind of human activity you can think of, there's probably going to be some kind of an algorithm or some kind of process that you can automate it in some way, and that raises a whole load of problems to do with bias and discrimination, and whether you're taking into account all of the things you should be taking into account, or whether you're basing decisions on things that you probably shouldn't be basing them on, and, and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, there, there are a lot of potential concerns with them. And do you think when government approaches these problems and thinks about how to regulate them, they should be thinking about regulating the people who use the algorithms or regulating the algorithms? Law is always about regulating people and, and organisations. And, you know, it's not necessarily about the technology itself. It's what people are doing with the technology. Machine learning isn't in and of itself a good thing or a bad thing. It's what you do with it. So you should be regulating particular uses of machine learning or particular uses of algorithms without necessarily regulating the algorithms themselves. But you can also regulate how these systems are constructed, what kind of data you're putting into them, what kind of use you're using, you know, using them for, and what kind of testing and evaluation you're using on them to make sure that they're not biased and they're not making discriminatory decisions and they're not doing potentially doing negative things with them. So it's all about the use of, of these systems and how they're designed and constructed. That's, that's what you'd be regulating. And if you're advising government, maybe you are advising government, and you had to tell them one thing to prioritise now, hmm. what would be the most important thing to get a grip on today in this space? That's a very good question. I think one of the things that's a major challenge for society at the minute is social media is obviously a huge thing and social media is algorithmically constructed in that what you're seeing on Facebook, what you're seeing on Twitter, what you're seeing in other places isn't just a chronological feed of what's happening in the world. It's algorithmically tailored to you for what you want to see and that has obviously had a majorly negative effect on, on politics and on the public sphere and I think, you know, the impact of this stuff on society is potentially really negative. I mean, social media is one that at the minute is probably the key thing, I think, for the government to be looking at. There are other things, you know, if you're looking at healthcare, you're looking at other areas like that, where these are going to be real, real problems of the future, but just not quite yet. Do you have faith that government has the power or the capacity to regulate something like social media, the no. scale of it? No, because it's international, it's cross-border, it's, you know, it's global. 
there's only so much that any one government can actually do, which is why, for example, things like GDPR, which is EU legislation across a you know a place of 500 million people, that gives them much more leverage over these kind of companies than if you're to say one country of 60 million people or 70 million people in terms of trying to actually get you know companies and, and, and the businesses that run these services to operate in a, in a better way, then you need to have some kind of leverage because they're, I mean, the five wealthiest corporations on the planet are Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft. The five most powerful corporations on the planet are Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple and Facebook. These are the ones that dominate the world and, and they're the ones that have really taken the leading roles in the new digital society and the only way you can challenge them is with you know an individual country in its own can't really do it you need to have collective action i think so can we talk about another category that i think it would be useful just to try and first of all define what it is what is the internet of things what does that mean in this space the internet so far has been on people's you know computers and then their phones and it's been really in this online world it's kind of separate from the real physical world So the Internet of Things is about bringing the Internet into the real physical world and basically connecting everyday devices up to the Internet. The classic example is is a fridge. So you can have an internet connected fridge and it can it can monitor your usage of all your food and how much you're eating and whether you've run out of milk and it can then order new milk. That's the sort of the real the one that's always picked is like the example of look how useful this could be. So it's internet connected devices through, you know, homes, through public spaces, through offices, through the whole physical world. And it's really instrumentalizing the physical world with sensors and, and microphones and cameras. It's not just an, an internet of things, but internet of eyes and ears that are watching and recording and sending data back to databases to be analysed and for whatever else comes after that. Is the thought or possibly even the fear about the Internet of Things that it bypasses the human beings, that the, the, the physical objects, the machines and the algorithms inside the machines talk to each other and leave us out? Part of the fear with the Internet of Things is that every sort of aspect of the physical world is going to be turned into a data point and sent back to corporations, sent back to whoever else. Once that data gets sent off, you lose track of it, you lose control of it. You've no real way of saying who's actually going to be getting your data about any of this stuff, or is it actually going to, who's going to be doing what with it. Some of it will be automated. So yes, that is potentially a concern. But there are real concerns about just, it's turning every single aspect of the world into surveillance space. The whole world becomes a surveillance apparatus, which is really useful for corporations to make money, but also, of course, really useful to states and governments who will want access to that data and will and already have the legislative authority to get access to that data. And so it becomes really, we're not quite at 1984 yet, but, you know, I think well, that's actually somewhere where Orwell was wrong. He thought that states were going to implement this stuff, the government would do this, but actually we're doing it ourselves by buying the devices that do it, putting them into our homes and giving all the data to corporations. So it's really fundamentally different from what most dystopian or a lot of dystopian sort of visions of the future have turned out, but it is still all about surveillance. Should we be more worried about it? Because it's also good for us. Presumably there are going to be lots of benefits for consumers, potentially for citizens, for people and how they interact with each other. There will be many conveniences that come from this. Are we wrong to think that we'll also benefit from this? That's a matter of opinion. I think, yes, there are obvious benefits from from this kind of stuff. So if you've got these really highly personalised services that you know take all your data about every aspect of your life and send it back to corporations and allow that to be analysed and allow them to then provide you with the really customised, really personalised services that you want, then if that's something that you're comfortable with, then that's fine. But I think you also have to think very critically about this and that which, what are the corporations that you're empowering and uh, in, in doing this and what are their positions and what are their records and who are you actually giving this data to and what kind of a position of authority are you putting them into when these are the people that are instrumentalising the physical world and they're the ones creating a world we're potentially wanting to create a worldwide surveillance apparatus and is that itself actually a good thing? Is the destruction of privacy that that entails? Is that a good thing? Does the Internet of Things exist yet? No. 
There are Internet of Things devices and Internet of Things systems, but as the what people talk about as being the Internet of Things is a fully instrumentalised world, that's not yet. And how will we know when it's arrived? Will it be announced on TV? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. It's the kind of thing that'll happen creepingly, slowly, over time, and eventually you'll wake up one day and realise that there's sensors everywhere and cameras everywhere. There already are cameras everywhere, but microphones everywhere, and that the whole world's connected up to the internet. I mean, of course, there's a big push now from Amazon and Google and, and other companies to get the smart devices into your home. So, you know, Amazon Echo and Google Home, they're Internet of Things devices. They want to record your conversations and they want to listen to what you're saying. Obviously, at the minute, it's just when you tell them to. But the ideal, I guess, for them is that they would have always on recording eventually and they would listen to everything and they would record everything and analyse everything and then target you with stuff based on that. So, you know, it's beginning. These things are beginning to get into society and it's beginning to get out there. But we're not quite at the full smart city, Internet of Things kind of thing yet. When it does exist, will it be possible to opt out of it? Yeah, to an extent, yeah. But I think there's going to be a point where if you have a fully instrumentalised public space, then to actually fully engage with public space, to fully engage with society, you're going to need to engage with the Internet of Things. So if you don't have the right device or you don't have an up-to-date device or you haven't got the right subscription, you might not be able to use services in the real physical world. So to actually be able to do that, you're going to need to have some kind of buy-in to the Internet of Things, whether or not you're a sceptic. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Philip Howard, who we interviewed on this podcast a while back, wrote a book about the Internet of Things, the subtitle of which is How It Could Set Us Free or Lock Us Up. You've been talking about the lock us up bit. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a set us free part of this too, that there is a way in which citizens, in which democratic publics could regain control of the public sphere? And actually, this is opens up new channels of communication, new ways of connecting people? I think potentially, uh, one of the big things, the big advantages of the Internet of Things and sort of smart cities, which is the logical conclusion of the Internet of Things, is in public services can be much more dynamically organised and much more responsive. So you can, for example... A lot of places have found that by tracking the sort of movement of, of, of people through their cities, they're able to put on, say, you know, public transport that's much more responsive and actually goes at the times that people need it. So in terms of public services and actually making cities more responsive and more usable for their, their citizens, potentially there are great benefits, but there is a huge downside. So it's that well, potential downside. So those two things need to balance. And it is, I think, possible to have the benefits without the negative. I think what you would how you would go about doing that is it's a difficult line to tread. So that would need a lot more work to get into that. But I think it is possible. And as you say, people often move from the Internet of Things to smart cities. People who don't live in cities, mm-hmm. are they going to lose in this future? Should they be more worried than others about the possibility of being left behind or left out? It's one of those things where, you know, if, if the Internet of Things really comes into people's homes and offices, and that'll be everywhere, but in terms of smart cities, then possibly there will probably need to be some kind of level of demand uh, in a city or a level of population in a city to make it worthwhile actually providing these services. But what you're also likely to find is that companies will provide them for free because they want the data. 
because the data is still useful to them, even if it's about a small population. So it's entirely possible that you'll find a future where eventually it'll come to smaller places. It's a bit like, you know, how broadband rolled out. It was in big cities, then it was in, you know, eventually it got to the villages. And there are some places that still don't really have it, but it's beginning to get to everywhere now. I think about 90% of the population has a, has a broadband connection. So, And I suspect that, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, if you talk about smart cities, it'll be smart towns and smart villages will be the next step and the next step and it will eventually get everywhere. And will it eventually also cover the whole globe? Is this actually the beginning of the end of, as you mentioned earlier, states are too small to do this, this isn't about individual nations? Is this really part of a story about the connecting of the globe? Well, it depends. Yes and no. I, th- I think certainly in, in the West, I think it's probably yes. In other parts of the world, it depends on governments. So, for example, Barcelona set up a smart city system and it was really advanced. It was one of the most advanced in, in the world and had of now basically said, actually, we don't really want necessarily to be doing this so much anymore, but they pulled back a lot on it. So I think that's something you're like to see where in different places, some people will be really keen on it in other places, they'll be less so. So the potential really for the Internet of Things and smart cities everywhere is there, but in terms of whether it will actually be adopted everywhere will depend very much on local kind of politics and, and local decision making. Barcelona is often held up as the future. So why have they pulled back? I think they were concerned about the data that they were giving to to private companies and and also just about privacy. I think was it was a bit of a concern, and I think they wondered if they really saw the benefit as as a city if they saw the benefit of doing this or whether the benefit was all going to to companies to to private actors that wasn't really there for for the for the people. So that was I think the big concern in Barcelona. Do you think that there is any realistic way in the short to medium term of controlling these corporations and engendering trust in them, getting people actually to have confidence that they can share this information because it's going to places where it will be used responsibly? I think there's a problem in that essentially surveillance and data collection is in the DNA of of these companies. So for someone like Facebook or Google or or Amazon, which are the the three biggest ones, I guess, that that are in this space, data collection and data gathering and analysis is completely at the heart of their business. So if you're going to challenge that, they're going to need to massively restructure their business and you need to create some kind of either incentive to make them do that or some kind of disincentive that they wouldn't want to carry on their their current business. And there's nothing, I think, at the minute that, that does that. Can you think of anything that might do it in future? I think one of the things that would make a big difference would be if the United States adopted something similar to GDPR, which they're never going to do. But I think if they did, then that could have quite a big impact. If you had the US and the EU, both with that that kind of legislation, that kind of regulation, then that could make a big difference, but I I don't see it ever happening. Because one of the questions is often, when will voting publics catch up with the concerns that experts like you and people who write and study this for a living have about this technology? It hasn't happened yet. Do you think that there is anything that could provoke a public popular reaction on the scale of what goes on in the elite communities in which we move? I suspect if it turned out that there was sensors everywhere and all the data was going back to the state and the state was then using that in some nefarious kind of way, there would be some kind of a pushback. But I think actually what we've seen is that generally people are actually kind of happy enough with it because they see a benefit in services and they they don't necessarily actually care so much that a company has their data. They don't necessarily care so much that, you know, Google uses it to do whatever with. They just think, well, is this useful to me? Is this something I can get benefit from? And if it is, then a lot of times they will do that. I think if it comes to, say, cities developing stuff, then you've also got people will just think, well, look, my boss is better. It turns up on time and I get to where I want to be on time. So, you know, realistically, they, if they see a benefit, then then probably not. If they see the data going to other places and it being used in ways they don't like, then, then perhaps. 
How much of this depends on the fact that it's free? Is that the crucial thing that has shaped this entire landscape, that the expectation is that it's free, but also when the benefits are free, it's harder to get people to worry about the downside? I think so, yeah. I mean, if you're saying to people, you know, you can have all this stuff and you're also going to have to pay £20 a month, then they'd be going, well, why? Why would I, you know, why would I want to do that when I can just get my normal bus or whatever? But of course, some people will pay that for a better bus service. Some people will do that. So I think the freeness of it is a large part of why it's become accepted. But I'm not sure that if you took that away now, that it would actually change anything. Do you think it's too late to take it away now? In the sense that's just now hardwired into people's understanding of the digital economy that most of the benefits are free and then you pay the price in privacy. I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah, and privacy, it's not data that's the cost, it's privacy. People have accepted to an extent, I think, that this is just how it is now, how these companies work, how these services work, and this is what they, they give up for it. There are concerns among you know among, among people. It's not just elites. So there are other people who are concerned about it. But for the most part, people are just happy with whatever service they get. Do you think there's a fundamental generational divide in people's responses to this? So there are people like me who didn't grow up with this technology and now live in a world where it exists. And people who are a lot younger for whom this is the world and their expectations are built around this as it currently exists. Do you think that that's part of what drives generational divides more broadly in politics that we have these different attitudes to the I think there are divides in terms of in terms of technology I think there are divides between older and younger yes absolutely I also think that there's a general kind of lack of knowledge about this stuff among the media and politicians so for example there was a couple of years ago Jeremy Corbyn and I don't believe for a second Jeremy Corbyn actually understood what any of this meant but he tweeted about big data and the internet of things and cyber physical systems and cyber physical systems are things that take inputs to create automated responses and produce outputs on a physical level so you can have a sensor and then a device that actually does something you know physically and he was roundly mocked by you know by the media by other politicians for saying things like internet of things and saying things like cyber physical systems because the political class and the media class lack the knowledge to get engaged in any kind of meaningful discussion about these things. So you've not only got a divide between younger generations and older generations, but between people in the media and, and politics who don't know much about this, but who are going to be charged with analysing this and talking about this and, and regulating this, and people who do know about this, but are kind of just not really in any of the positions of influence to actually be able to have any say over how these things are done, which is a bit of a problem. So for politics more generally, I think those kind of divides actually are real real issues, not just between people who, who you know, young and old, but also between people in established positions of, of, of authority and influence who don't necessarily actually know what they're talking about, when the people who do know what they're talking about aren't really in those positions of authority and influence, which is a real problem for tackling these kind of things. Is there a danger that there really are only a relatively small number of people who fully understand this world and how it works, and that many of them do work for these corporations. I mean, should we be worried about the fact that the corporations don't just have the data mm-hmm. and the money? They also have a lot of the expertise on which the regulation of these systems depends. That's absolutely true. And I think there's been a perception over, over, over quite some time that it's just tech. So people, other people don't necessarily need to actually go and inform themselves about it. But I think, you know, originally the spinning jenny that was just tech, factories were just tech, you know, the microprocessor was just tech, the internet was just tech, all of those things transformed the whole world. And there comes to a point where you can say these companies hold all this expertise, but actually people need to go and inform themselves about this stuff because you can't really say it's just tech anymore because just tech becomes the real world very, very quickly before anyone really notices. So yes, these companies have, you know, all the people who actually real genuine experts on how to do this stuff. That's true, but people can still go and learn about things and inform themselves and make, you know, informed analysis of, of this stuff. If someone was listening to this and they thought, yes, I do want to go and inform myself, 
where should they start? <laughs> it pays me to say it, but uh, Google. Just start Googling terms, go to Wikipedia, read the stuff and learn about it. Read critical voices, look for people like Zainab Tufekci, who's a phenomenal academic in the US. He writes regularly for the New York Times about the impact of tech in society. People like that who are doing really great work in this kind of area, that really good critical voices that aren't just sort of spouting the sort of the, the company line from Google or Facebook. And read some of the stuff with Carl Corvallader and, and The Observer, read the other stuff that's come out lately and, and just try and figure out what the basics of what's actually going on are. Find links to some of the things that Jennifer was talking about at tppodcast underscore. Our next Talking Politics guide is going to be on nuclear weapons. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Our next Talking Politics guide is going to be on nuclear weapons. Oh, yes. <laughs> My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.